All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of Storytime with Uncle Tweezy. Ah! I've had so many requests over the last couple years, um, just about, I don't know, certain albums, certain situations. Uh, I thought maybe cool to start compiling all these things for posterity so that uh, when I write my big book, I have things to remember. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to write anything, but I do like talking. So, let's dig on in. I think probably the number one question that I get, um, I should say maybe not number one, but at least the top five question that I get is, uh, you know, did Eminem ever respond? Did he ever respond back to Dear Slim? So, I guess probably the easiest thing to do would to explain some of the background behind the song, and then uh, I can dig into whether or not he responded, but to give you a little bit of background, I, uh, probably around late 90s, approximately, um, myself and my, uh, former rhyme partner, Golden Child, uh, we started to do a lot of mainstream events, whether that was open mics, um, not really battle contests, but definitely getting into the mainstream side of things as far as opening up for groups that I had grown up listening to, um, notably guys like Wu-Tang Clan, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Mob Deep, you know, a lot of the um, classic 90s rap music stuff. So right around that time, I had sort of found this um, way of getting into those environments, and, and let me preface this by saying that we were not going in there to be anything except for hopefully a light, and uh, I had found that a group called the Beat Nuts uh, was coming to South Beach. And I used to kind of monitor um, some of the different websites that used to post up, you know, about shows and stuff. And this is late 90s, so I think I had to go, like, to a uh, <laughs> to a library to use the Internet or whatever. But anyway, point is, I would go there and check on these sites and see who was coming in concert. And then I would generally try to find out who the promoter was and give him a call and just harass him to, uh, to open up for the artist. In this particular case, I connected with this uh, promotional company out of Miami called NFA and sent him my stuff. I should say at that time sent him me and Golden Child stuff. And so basically when I sent it off, I was like, you know, crossing my fingers, praying that God would open up the door. Sure enough, they hit me back. They loved the album. Um, this record was called Insightful Comprehensions. It was a, it was Sons of Intellect at the time, myself and Golden Child. And they said, yeah, why don't you come and open up for the Beat Nuts? We're bringing them in to, uh, I can't remember the club in South Beach. They said, you know, we'll put you up in a hotel and uh, you can open up. So we head on out, myself and Golden Child and, uh, and another uh, kid that we used to bring along with us. Sure enough, we get there, we come to find out that the Beat Nuts had canceled. And before I got there, they brought us up to a local radio station to freestyle. And at the time I met this guy, his name was AL. He was part of the Beat Nuts crew. And so we're on the radio, it's a mainstream radio station, just throwing out topics, freestyling, coming off the head. And I'll never forget this guy, AL, you know, 
in between commercials or whatever, he's like, yo, you got to check out my boy Eminem. And that was the first time I think I had heard his name. No, I'm sorry. I had heard about his name on the internet. Um, and then this kind of reinforced it. And he sort of spit one of his lyrics and he, I just thought the lyric to me sounded dumb. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't like that dope that he said from Eminem. It sounded kind of, you know, I don't know, tongue in cheek, kind of corny, but, and I'll be honest with you, you know, no one will ever say this, but white rappers tend to be a little bit, I guess they tend to be a little bit, you know, I'm better than that white rapper. <laughs> white rappers tend to have a chip on their shoulder with other white rappers. So I've been hearing this buzz online about him, never heard his music, but that one line was enough to make me be like, yeah, whatever. So that was the first time it had crossed my mind about this guy. Well, I'm still monitoring all these blogs and I come to find out, I should say they weren't blogs and they were probably websites. I come to find out that, uh, you know, I read an interview and he talked about getting signed to Dr. Dre. And I remember thinking, this white rapper from Detroit is signing with Mr. West Coast, Dr. Dre. And I just remember thinking, well, that's not going to work. Come to find out just a little bit later, um, I was in a, a store, uh, like a music store, putting my tapes in. I know, this, sound, this sounds so dated. Uh, I was putting my tapes in, and while I put my tapes in, there was a free promo cassette single for the upcoming Eminem album, and so I just took it, because I was curious to hear what this would sound like. And uh, this was coming back from Tampa, and um, on my way back, you know, I'm listening to it, and it's just ridiculously vulgar, over-the-top, you know, shock rap. And in my head, I just thought that it seems like the archetype for white rappers is, like, to either be the crazy frat boy, white dude, like House of Pain or Beastie Boys, or you have to be, like, this super down white guy like Third Base was. And Eminem didn't really seem to fit into any of it. But I did kind of think like, oh, he's just going the shock rap because it was so hard for white rappers at the time to get, you know, to really get any sort of respect or, or um, you know, an opportunity to get on the mic. And so you had to find some sort of gimmick. And so I remember listening to it and I played it for Golden Child and he just really dismissed it. Golden Child at the time was like super backpack rapper and he was just very like... If it ain't this, then it sucks. <laughs> so, long story short, that was my first sort of inkling of, of this guy coming out. And I thought, he's going to have a hard time establishing himself. You know what I mean? That's what I thought in my head. I thought, this guy's going to have a hard time um, doing any sort of, you know, getting any sort of respect. Because the challenges of being a white rapper combined with... Um, you know anything else? He's just gonna he's just gonna struggle. But lo and behold, um, next thing I know, you know he blows up almost overnight. And at that time, I had been um, right around '98. I started working on my first solo album, late '98 which eventually became 7th Avenue, which eventually became 
my first solo album that came out on a national scale. So flash forward almost two and a half years until my record finally actually came out. And long story short, all of a sudden, you know, I'm out touring, I'm on the road, I'm just trying to get as many shows as I can. I'll never forget, this was actually a couple months before my record came out. I was somewhere in Houston uh, doing a show with a guy named Trey Nine, and he was sort of doing this b-boy breakdance show um, in Houston. And some of the b-boys, I remember sort of remarking like, oh, this guy sounds like Eminem, referring to me. That was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. And, you know, I immediately scoffed about it, like, oh, come on. You know what I mean? Like, really? Because in my head, I was like, everything I had done and recorded was done before Eminem had come out. I had started recording it in 98, never had heard his music, didn't know what he sounded like. Um, and then he dropped shortly after. So, in my head, I was like, you know, if I had this you know, if I had this divine, not divine, if I had this conspiracy plan to go and, um, you know, try to copy him, it's just not, it was as was possible because I had already been working on my stuff before he had come out and my stuff was done after he had come out. But to the listener, you know what I mean? They just don't know that. They don't hear that. All they hear is they see you up there. And so I thought, well, ain't this a head scratcher? I'm immediately compared to this guy. And in my head, I was like, I don't think I sound like him at all. But I thought, oh, it's a, it's a fluke. This isn't going to stick. Because inevitably, when you're a white rapper, you get compared to other white rappers. Actually, just when you do rap, people always try to compare you to this person. And I was brand new to the industry, so in my situation, I didn't know really about the whole Christian rap comparison thing and how much of Christian rap had been like, if you like A, well, here's B. If you like this secular artist, well, here's the counterpart to him. And it became weird to me that like in the Christian music industry, so much of it was based on not really being original or creative. So much of it was based on providing an alternative which at times was like being a copycat and I just came up in an era where it was like no biting especially in hip hop but suffice to say the more I began to tour the more I began to hear that and I didn't know whether it was like oh you know this guy is so popular and we as youth pastors and and parents we want to have an alternative and we're going to latch onto the first thing that's remotely close to it because even from a flow standpoint, you know, Eminem's flow, his actual way of putting together words was super intricate. You know, he was rhyming multi-syllable words within the bar of the actual line, you know what I mean? Which is incredibly hard to do. And my flow patterns were not like that. I generally was like, a, B, C, D, you know, A rhymes with B, B rhymes with C. I might rhyme within the bar, but I'm not rhyming multiple syllables in the bar. And for those that understand what this means, it's like saying, going away while I'm showing to play, I'm going today while I'm rolling with J. So I'm rhyming within the bar and I'm rhyming multi-syllables. I don't tend to rhyme like that. I might rhyme 
going over here and I'm about to drop, I'm going to keep it clear and you can see me rock. That's, ten, that's how I tend to rhyme or, or construct my lyrics. So in my head, I thought, this is just odd to me. You know what I mean? Like our fly, flow patterns are different. Vocally, I know I was a little more high pitched, but I just felt like it just doesn't seem, this doesn't seem legit. But I was kind of at a crossroads musically because, you know, my first album was struggling. It wasn't selling well. Um, I was struggling on the road financially and I felt like, you know, I, and I was actually about to get dropped from my record label. And so all these things are going through my head and I'm thinking, you know, I still have a heart for ministry. I still have a passion to reach people. So I'm thinking on one hand, people are being reached with the gospel because they feel like I am a counterpart, you know, or a alternative. And if I fight that tooth and nail, it's almost like telling the the fan or the listener, hey, you're stupid, you know, you're stupid for saying that about me. And I was like, you know, do I just swallow my pride and just sort of let this roll off my back and just be like, if that's what you want me to be, even though I don't think I am, if that's what you want me to be, then I'll just silently take the compliment and keep it moving. So I give this, I, I you know, I give this really long answer for a reason. The reason is, um, these are all the things that were going about in my head as I went to write Dear Slim. So now you have to understand at the time, I'll never forget it actually. I, I remember it was on my first tour. I was somewhere in the Northwest, um, doing this sort of outreach tour called the Extreme tour where we would just kind of set up in a park or a, a skate park or something and just share the gospel and then you know generally I was staying at somebody's house and so I thought okay well maybe I should write you know to address this and at the time it was really popular in hip-hop if you wanted to write to somebody <laughs> you would take their beat and then rhyme over it. It was like, it was real popular on, on mixtapes to go, if you were going to diss somebody, you would take their hit and rhyme over their hit. It was kind of like being like, you know, in your face, man, I'm going to take your own song and flip it on you. Now, I wasn't trying to diss him by any means, but I liked the aesthetic of taking something and flipping it and writing it. Now, I didn't, this was before Stan had ever come out. So at the time, when I wrote the song, or I should say, when I, when, I, when I started jotting ideas down for the original song, I started sort of demoing song lyrics that I would have written to him. Now, I'll never forget writing in my book and going, there was a few, few lines I had written, kind of like, oh, you know, you grew up poor on welfare, and I have family members that are in that same situation, and... I remember taking those lyrics and just and just cut, cutting them out. I got rid of them because it wasn't like what I wanted to say. But I, I remember the idea was still sort of circulating in my head. You know, like, why don't I write a song to him 
that will inadvertently allow me to address people that were comparing me to him. So flash forward about a half a year, I get dropped by my record label. I want to say Stan came out uh, in that time. And I remember hearing Stan. Now another thing I had done at the time was made a conscious effort to just not listen to his music. Um, or listen to any of his albums. Because I felt like if I did listen to it, then people would say, oh, see, you're just an Eminem biter. You just copied his style and this, that, and the third. And so, you know, and also, too, I think hip-hop artists, whether we realize it or not, we're subconsciously um, influenced by the people we listen to. There's certain things that we'll pick up on that might wind up in our flow. You know what I mean? I mean, just like any anybody that creates you tend to draw inspiration from the ones that you look up to or even the ones that you don't look up to that you just tend to be, you know, listening to. So I was like, you know what? I got a real easy way for people to say, oh, you're, I got a real easy way to shut people down that say, oh, you're just trying to be like him. I'll just be like, look, I don't, I've never listened to his full album. So you can't say that. Not that that really helped anything. But anyway, that was my own sort of like way of combating that. And so I had never listened to the Slim Shady EP or LP. I had never listened to um, Marshall Mathers' album. Um, but right around the same time, I want to say Golden Child gave me a burnt CD copy of Infinite, which was his album that was written before he blew up, before he became the Slim Shady persona. And I remember listening to Infinite and just thinking how different the album was. The Infinite album that he had was like very, very much you could tell he was heavily influenced by a rapper called AZ and it almost had a Nas influence. He was still multi-syllabic, but it was very influenced by other people. It wasn't the Slim Shady persona that we all know, which is like the shock rapper, you know, rap type stuff. And in fact, there was definitely some positive songs on there. I mean, I, and there was a line that really stuck out to me on one of the songs called It's Okay, where he said, you know, in the midst of my insanity, I found my Christianity. And so I thought about that as I listened to it, like, man, you went from that to the Slim Shady EP, where it's a night and day change up. And then now you're being defined by these really shock rap type content. So all that went into my head as I sat down to finally, you know, write Dear Slim, the first version. But at the time I recorded it, um, I had like an instrumental from a Roots song, and I just re recorded it over that instrumental, uh, really just to get my ideas out. And so I didn't have even a chorus for the song. In fact, I wrote the song with no structure to the song. And if you listen to those versions, I mean, the verses are really long. And that's generally a no-no, you know I mean? They say that, you know, people people's attention span will only go 16 bars. I didn't write in a 16-bar format. Like, I wrote, I don't know, I think, like, the verses are, like, 24 bars, and third verse is even longer. I mean, it was a long song. Didn't have a chorus either. It was just verses. So, all that to be said, 
uh, I demoed it that summer when I got dropped by my label. My man Todd Collins was nice enough to pay for studio time, and so I demoed like, I don't know, 15 songs or something like that that summer in like one session, that being one of them. And I sort of just stuck it at the back of my head and, and you know, thought about the song, didn't really think too much about it. Um, you know, and I was in a bad spot because I had been dropped from my label. Everything I had hoped and dreamed for was looking like it was crumbling and falling apart. I was financially really struggling. I uh, got evicted, almost got evicted from my apartment, almost got my car repossessed, you know, hit the road for four months, came back in debt, uh, owed the IRS tax money. I mean, it was just a bad spot for me. And, um, and, and no labels would sign me. You know, it looked like I was this sort of like, like I had leprosy or something like that. Nobody wanted to bother signing me because, you know, it looked like a failed experiment. So I was in a bad spot. And um, I had that song in my head. I had that demo version of it. And long story short, I ended up basically, uh, uh, at the time, uh, this guy by the name of uh, Billy Puddles had been traveling with me and he had taken a sample and looped it and put some drums under it that he had gotten, I want to say he got the sample off of like a, a free CD that came with his laptop or something to that effect. And something about the way he had looped up the sample um, kind of stuck in my head. And I was like, oh man, I wonder if this song would work over that sample. Well, the problem is with samples is that you have to clear the sample. You can't, um, you know, you can't just take a sample from something and put it on your album. Uh, those that own the original content, you know, can come after you and sue you because copyright laws. You are essentially like, you know, you're taking someone else's composition. You can't do that. If you do, you have to pay for it, which is whatever they want to charge you. And then you have to give them what is called publishing. You have to hold them as a writer on the song. So while that beat sort of gave me a beat, it didn't really fix the problem because I needed sort of a, um, you know, I needed an original music piece to put the lyrics over. And uh, I remember at, at a thing called Crossover one time, I had performed, which is this hip-hop church in Tampa, and I think I want to say I rhymed over that sampled, looped beat, and when I got to the chorus part, there was no chorus, so I just sort of was like, la, 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 because I didn't have anything to go there. You know what I mean? Like, it was like a placeholder. I was like, I'll just do this la-la until I figure out what I'm going to do for the chorus. Well, I perform the song, and people just flip out. I look out, I see people lifting their hands in the air, you know, almost worshiping. And I was like, whoa, I can't believe this is actually, like, connecting. And I remember getting off the stage and people just being like, yo, what, where can I get that song? Or, or just like, man, I can't believe you said that. Or da, da, da. And I was like, that? 
you know, I really scratched my head. I didn't think it would connect like it did. So I put it to the back of my head again, and I was like, eh, I'm just going to wait. I end up, I want to say, I want to say I either performed it somewhere else or something like that. And I remember going, I remember performing at my church and somebody at my church going, yo, what's up with that Eminem song? And I'm thinking, how would anybody even know about it? Like I could, like I hadn't really had a song that started to get groundswell like that where people were asking me about it. So all this to be said, I end up wind up getting a record deal with uh, Tooth and Nail Records. And I remember thinking, I got to put this song out. Like, I wasn't going to put it out because I thought it just wasn't finished. And I was like, you know what? I got to put this song out with this album. Not thinking that it would be the breakout song. Not thinking how far it would go um, or whatever. So, but it still put me back to the original problem. So I was like, I don't really have a track to go for this song. So I brought it to Todd, who was sort of, um, well, no, he was producing the album. Now, sometimes that meant he was making original songs from scratch. Sometimes that meant he was tweaking beats that I already had. In this case, you know, I was like, look, I got to I gotta put this song out, but obviously we can't do anything with this sample. What are we going to do? Well, at the time, he was working with a guitar player by the name of Mike Rapole who now is like a really famous guitar player. I think he's playing for Kelly Clarkson or something. I don't know. I remember him. He's huge. So he was working with him on guitar stuff. And so this guy was just like a phenomenal guitar player. He was really great at coming up with melodies and things like that. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but basically him and Todd worked together on the track. And I matched the melody with that guitar part and so we were able to like basically make the music for the first time and um, that's basically what ended up happening and so I put the song out and the rest is history and I'll probably do a part two and talk about what had happened from there on but that was really everything that went into making of Dear Slim and I'll probably do a part two to explain what happened from there on. But anyway, this has been story time with Uncle Tweezy. Hope you guys dug it. God bless y'all. One love, one God, one way. That seemed appropriate. All right, y'all, let me pick up where I left off. This is the part two part of Dear Slim. No pun intended, even though there was part one and part two. I just mean more like I want to give you guys background, everything up to that point, and... Um, want to give you some uh, info after that. So I wrote the song uh, after much, much demand to hear it um, and then put it out on my collaborations album. Now, <clears throat> when I say that was like the sleeper hit, I had no expectations of what that song was going to do. I really kind of felt like it, it, I knew there was some buzz about it and there was groundswell. But I didn't think it would be the thing that really turned the corner for me in a lot of ways. Long story short, um, I kind of felt like I had something in my po back pocket with the song. But reality being, uh, you never really know what, what is going to jump off. So, I dropped the song. I put it on the album. 
this and uh, was coming out on Tooth and Nail Records. I was on a different label because I had uh, been dropped literally from my first label. And um, I'll never forget within, I want to say at least a couple weeks uh, from the record coming out, I was in Asheville, North Carolina. I'll never forget this. It was a free show. I'm sorry, Hendersonville, North Carolina, right near it. It was a free show. I was opening up for Skillet. Um, I remember stepping off the stage right after I got done. There's a couple thousand people there, and a guy walking up to me and him basically saying, "You know, you don't know me." Uh, he said, "But this uh, last week, I was with Pod. I work as the road pastor, and I happen to have your album." He said, "I gotta give him out," and um, <clears throat> he goes, "I met Eminem." And began to tell me the story of how uh, being backstage at the Video Music Awards with P.O.D., he saw Eminem surrounded by a bunch of bodyguards. And he said that he prayed. And he said, God, give me the opportunity to give this guy this song. Now, keep in mind, I never met him. Didn't know this guy. Sure enough, he said the, uh, the bodyguards just departed. And he walked up to him and he said, you know that song you have called Stan? And he said, yeah. He said, well, this guy right here, he's got a song like that for you. And M's response was, was he dissing me? <laughs> he's like, no, he's got something you need to hear. Handed him the CD, walked away, and that was it. Now, this is coming right after I walk off stage, and I'm just floored. Because up to that point, I thought, well, there's no real way I can get this to him. There's no way he's going to hear it. I'll just have to let it stand alone as a song and... That's going to be it. The fact that that had happened so quickly, uh, honestly, really blew my mind. And I guess for a lot of intents and purposes, that was the beginning of multiple chapters um, in that song. And so as the next year progressed, as the next, um, you know, just moment after moment happened, I began to see sort of the shock waves, these ripple effects. And I remember, you know, when that happened, kind of feeling like, man, this is something that I want to shout from the rooftops. Like, look, I know he got my album. I know he got a chance to hear the song. But I realized, like, it's very easy when it comes to celebrity to sort of treat celebrities as bigger than they really should be treated. And I realized, like, if I was going to sit here and blow this out and let everybody know about it, I kind of felt like it would be ruining the whole purpose behind it in the first place. And so I kind of kept quiet about it. I don't think I really told anybody. Maybe I told a few people, but obviously this is kind of pre-social media, so it wasn't like I could tweet out about it. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like I was getting this you know, major reaction, but at the same token, I was getting some backlash. Um, some of the backlash was coming from other Christian rappers uh, writing songs, dissing me. Some of the backlash was coming from blogs online. Some of the backlash was actually even coming from my own local newspaper uh, who had no idea that I lived locally. And I was just sort of monitoring the whole thing and kind of scratching my head like, well, I don't see how you could misinterpret what I was trying to say, but that's exactly what happens. And I don't think anything like this had ever happened before to really gauge it by so some people were saying oh it was a publicity stunt oh you should 
you know, you should write a song to him in private, oh, you know, you're just ripping him off, I mean, those are some of the negative things, but the positive far outweighed whatever the negative was, I was also kind of blown away to hear things like, somebody come up to me saying, oh, you know, that song helped put my marriage back together, thinking, how's that, how would that put your marriage back together, how would a song written to Eminem put your marriage back together, but basically this lady saying, you know, my marriage was on the rocks, my husband was into Eminem, I gave him this song, and it helped us start talking again, helped us start dialoguing again, or helped my husband come to Christ, and as I began to tour that record, the other thing I started to hear from, unfortunately, church people, or sometimes even youth pastors, you know, something to the effect of, oh, I hate Eminem, and I'm so glad you stuck it to him. And just kind of scratching my head like, no, you definitely missed the point there. This isn't about sticking it to anybody. And certainly hating somebody would not be what God wants us to be. So I was almost like a little kid that like ran into a restaurant and shouted, fire. And didn't even realize what the effect that that would happen. Because all of a sudden, like I said, I started seeing these repercussions. Well, a couple months progressed and it was kind of like obvious that this was the song that was causing the most, you know, reaction. And so generally you go with the song that's causing the most reaction for your video. And so we thought, well, probably would make sense to shoot a video for Dear Slim. And, um, and that's exactly what we did. I went to Atlanta. We shot the music video. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's kind of an uneventful video. Just shot it. Decided to put it out to all the regular outlets. Well, long story short, we decided to also, um, at the time, Tooth & Nail Records had a good inroad with MTV2. Not regular MTV, but MTV2. And also popping off at the time was a huge show by the name of TRL, which is Total Request Live. It's probably one of the biggest shows. Ironically, one of the biggest shows that helped launch Eminem's career. Um, we sent it to MTV2. I should say the label did. And we did not hear any response back. And kind of all of us had forgotten all about it. And I'll never forget this because it's one of those defining moments in my career. Uh, I remember I had to take a flight to Toronto for a show. And I met up with my then DJ, who kind of jokingly said, you know, hey, are you going to be on TRL today? And I'm like, no. He said, oh, well, someone said yesterday on TRL that we're going to have something on today and it's going to be very controversial. Just kind of laughed it off, didn't really think about it. Well, I land in Canada with voicemail on my phone that basically was from the label Tooth & Nail Records saying MTV has just called us and said they were going to play the video and they are intentionally going to make it controversial. And I was like, you know, that went from zero to 100 real quick. You know what I mean? Like, it was kind of mind-blowing how fast that happened. And, and so, long story short, I'm in traffic, dead-stop rush-hour traffic in Toronto, running up my phone bill while my wife has the phone held up to, to, the, to, to the television set while TRL is playing, and I'm listening to them on the other line, 
basically dragging my name through the mud. They're saying, oh, this KJ52 guy, he wrote a song dissing Eminem, and we're going to play it, but we want you to be the judge. He sounds like a hater. Rah, 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 rah. So they play it, and I thought, well, as long as they play the whole song, it'd be hard to, hard to like, hard to misinterpret the song. Well, it turns out MTV plays like one verse of the song and cuts it off. And they go and they cut away to try to like interview somebody about it and they didn't really have an answer. And I remember the VJ, the host, it was like, his name was Caduce, I think was his name. And he said, I sounded like a complicated hater. <laughs> I'll never forget that term, complicated hater. I didn't even really know what that meant, but it was enough to make me go, well, that didn't go the way I planned it. And that was kind of it, you know what I mean? Like, that was really what happened. Like, that was basically the end of it. And so we put up, I remember we put up something on the website, like, hey, you know, check out the rest of the song here. And you would think, like, that kind of exposure would, like, lead to massive sales of your song or this, that, and the other. And honestly, none of that happened. Um, that was basically it. Like, that was really the end and the beginning uh, of the whole thing. And so I kind of, like, just close the chapter on it like well I guess that's it nothing else is gonna happen now <laughs> little would I know that that would be like the beginning of the multiple chapters of Dear Slim Saga I guess for lack of a better term uh, but I think I'm gonna go ahead and sign off right here and that um, as the uh, the Dear Slim I don't want to say the Dear Slim debacle because it was not a debacle. I had to believe that, that God was in control of the whole thing. That, you know, it, it still made me kind of blow my mind that some little nobody like me could have made it all the way to the biggest show on the planet, which was MTV's TRL at the time. Now, I know probably the modern generation has no comprehension of how big TRL really was because it's not like MTV even plays videos anymore. But at the time, this was a big deal. This was a massive deal. In fact, Actually, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first time MTV had ever played a single Christian Christian rap song, or video for that matter. Um, this marked, you know, a milestone, uh, I guess. I mean, I guess I don't know if it counts if they diss it, but <laughs> I, always, I always joked about the whole thing. I was like, you know, they say everybody gets 15 minutes of fame. I got approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds of fame before it was over with, but, uh, you know, in those situations, all you can do is laugh, and kind of things just continue like they were, I continued to see God uh, open up doors with the song that I had not ever thought was going to happen, and then I kind of began to see, you know, the backlash continue to happen too, all at the same time, it was like, just kind of like everything just went to the nth degree, um, and that was really a reason why uh, I wrote the follow-up, because I felt like, one, I, I'll be honest with you, I hadn't really thought through what I was trying to say on Dear Slim. I was just sort of, you know, like they say in journalism, free-writing. I was just basically free-writing my thoughts into the first version. And I, I honestly, I did. I kind of felt like nobody was going to pay attention. I didn't really f think through what I was saying. So without really thinking it through... I kind of was like, well, I guess this could be in misinterpreted. You know what I mean? And those were the things I thought about. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a follow-up. I'm going to call it Dear Slim Part 2. And I'm going to clarify everything I have to say. 
and then I'm going to put it to bed, and I'm never going to come back to it. And that's exactly what I did. So here I am all these years later, and um, I never did write another one because it wasn't necessary. I felt like I had said everything I wanted to say, and I really kind of felt like Dear Slim 2 summed up what I wanted to say better, you know. But it is what it is. I don't make no apologies. I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you guys for tuning in. This has been the first installment of Story Time with Uncle Tweezy.